You can power on your Bible or turn to the one in their book rack to 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to dive into 1 John chapter 2. I encourage you, if you're new here to this church and you walked in and you didn't recognize anybody and you're kind of new to the whole experience, maybe you're not a Christian or you've been searching out the things of God, we want to let you know we started this church for you. Uh, we believe nobody's too far from God to experience life change through Jesus, that the church should be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Interestingly, the title of our sermon series, Revenge of the Saints, it's not that the word saint is bad. In fact, um, while we don't believe in sainthood, we do believe in those who have gone before us to sacrifice to further God's kingdom work to demonstrate the grace and love of Jesus well. And what we've been looking at is how people lived differently because of the love of Jesus Christ in their life. And we were talking about in a culture and society where there is darkness and evil in a broken, fallen world where the New England Patriots make it to the Super Bowl every year. (laughs) And the Indiana Hoosiers don't play in the NCAA tournament, man. Come on now. That no Hoosier fans at any of our services this weekend. Purdue fans, are there Purdue fans out there? A lot of you Purdue fans. Yeah, because how many Purdue fans think this is your year you're going to go all the way? (laughs) You know what the best part is? All four services, same response. Like none of you, you know, you're a Purdue fan. You got this figured out. Hey man, I don't root against them. It's Big Ten in the tournament, baby. Uh, Go Purdue. Isaac Haas went down though. It's like you guys got the worst luck, but you never know. There is still hope. A 16 seed knocked off the number one seed in the entire tournament. I love it. Uh, today we're going to be about, uh, talking about being a light in the darkness, being hope in a dark and fallen world where even a 16 seed can knock off the number one seed. But we're talking about a lot more important things than the NCAA tournament, right? When we talk about a broken, fallen, evil world that we live in, you're all aware of that because you've experienced parts of it. And it's why we had some people in our church family that had a, a loved one, a friend of theirs. Some of you uh, may have gone to high school with him. He was my age. His name was Christopher that was in the military and uh, grew up at Carmel High School and was uh, killed in a, in a helicopter crash over in Iraq and just devastating to the, the Carmel community. And the reality is we wouldn't have people over there if there wasn't anger and violence and hatred in our society and culture today. It's the reality of the the world that we live in, where threats of nuclear war exist, where racism is still prevalent, where there are people on social media who we get so riled up, we can't stop ourselves from returning anger with anger, and it's infected our society and culture. And so we've been looking at how to live differently. And last week, we talked about the revenge of those who follow Jesus is to fight back with grace rather than harm. And we looked at Saul, who became Paul, that understood the grace of Jesus. This week, I want to look at the Apostle John. The Apostle John. You may not be familiar with John. He was one of the original 12 disciples. He lived the longest of all the disciples. And in the early 90s AD, he did a lot of writing. In fact, he wrote the Gospel of John. It's thought he wrote the first three epistles of John. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And he wrote down the Revelation, the vision that God gave him about what the end times would be like. It's the final book in the New Testament called the book of Revelation. And the Apostle John wrote these things around 85 to 95 AD. And we know that 1 John in particular, written during that time span, most likely was written as an epistle, a letter to the church in Ephesus. 
And we know this because early church uh, scholars and fathers like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, who followed in the line of secession of John, and Eusebius later in church history, they all referred to John writing this to the church in Ephesus. That's important, little biblical note to, to mark or write down if you're taking notes, because I'm going to reference it later. A little background on 1 John was that he was writing this to that church in Ephesus about how to live and love differently in a society and culture that often was pretty pagan. The church in Ephesus, as we've discussed last week, worshipped the goddess uh, Artemis or Diana. And it was a place where they actually ran at Paul out of town and wanted to kill him when he first came to town there. And yet the gospel of Jesus, through the grace and love of those early Christians, transformed that city and one of the largest early megachurches of uh, Christianity started there in the church of Ephesus. And Paul's protege, Timothy, led that church. And so Paul writes the letter uh, to the church in Ephesus, we call Ephesians, and First John is written uh, to the Ephesians as well. And so it says this in 1 John chapter 2, church, you ready to study God's word together? Come on now, verse 15 to 17, we're going to look at the later part of 1 John 2 and then work our way backwards. And it says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Now let's make clear, world here, it's not talking about don't love people. The Greek word for world is very different. This is we should definitely, as Christians, as we'll talk about, love people in the world. It's talking about loving the world, the things in this world that draw our love and our adoration and our worship away from our Heavenly Father. That you and I were created to love God back because he first loved us. And that the enemy would love to destroy that. And he uses these three things in verse 16 to draw our love away from God to things in this world. For everything in the world... Uh, If you want to take notes, the lust of the flesh, number one, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, we'll break those down in a little while, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. That in our culture, in our society, that what we're doing has eternal implications. That the little flyer in your program for the Easter service could make an eternal impact in somebody's life by a simple invitation. And even more importantly, as we've talked about many times here, that we don't just invite people without actually loving them and desiring them and inviting them into our home as well to be a part of their life because we care for people. That's at the heart of what we're going to discuss together today in a dark world, how to be a light in the darkness. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we pause uh, here in the service who came out uh, the, night, or the day after St. Patrick's Day. And we've come to worship you, to study your word. Some of us have been Christians a long time. I pray that you take my words away and we would only hear what you desire from us, God. That those of us who've been Christians a while, we could be transformed again today. And then for others, many of us may be in the room or watching online who are new to following you or to this church in particular. God, we acknowledge the presence of your Holy Spirit with us. We pray you'd use this time and speak to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. I got a weird question. Anybody in here been in a legit fight before? Anybody out there? Okay, a few of you. Man, a lot of fighters in this room. We'll have to pray for those people that raised their hand after the service. I'll tell you, um, I remember one time I almost got in a very legit fight. And I know maybe we shouldn't talk about these things at church, but we're real here. And when I was 15 years old and I was in high school, 
I was playing lunch ball basketball at lunchtime. Anybody out there remember those days? And I remember my buddies and I were playing, and one of my friends was guarding me. And he was guarding me really closely, and we began to get into a little bit. And at first it was just some good competitive nature, and then it turned a little ugly. And we began to get in each other's faces. And it just so happened that this particular young man happened to be one of the largest, most muscular men in our entire class. One day he would be 235 pounds of pure muscle. And I remember we got in each other's faces, and, and all of a sudden a fight almost broke out, and one person hit the other person And I don't know what happened to me. I don't know if it was the little man syndrome, but I was the aggressor and I punched this large guy right in the face. I'm not making this up. This is a true story. And I didn't just kind of give him one of these or something, you know, like I full on fist like rare back. I punched him as hard as I possibly could right in the jaw at school. I should have been kicked out of school. Punched him as hard as I could in the jaw. He didn't flinch. Instead, he just straightened up and looked down at me. And all of a sudden, I realized I just awakened a beast and I was in for a pummeling. And then this guy didn't take a swing. He was the bigger man in the situation. And he just stared at me and looked at me with anger. And I won't get into the details of it, but the reality was this was actually a kid who got in trouble sometimes in school. And yet he had the ability to recognize what was really going on in the situation. Just two friends were arguing. The assistant principal saw people begin to crowd around. And so he walked over and he's like, hey, what's going on here? And nobody said anything at first. And my friend that I just punched in the face said, he just punched me in the face. And the assistant principal goes, anybody else see him punch him in the face? Nobody said anything. One of my other friends, after 60 seconds or so, who was there playing as well, goes, I didn't see anything. You see anything? I didn't see anything. The assistant principal, so you, you know who I'm talking about. He looks up, he goes, well, play ball. And we went back and played basketball for like the next 20 minutes. And all of a sudden, that guy I just punched in the face, we were friends again, and we we're playing basketball together. You know how young guys could work sometimes. But I always remember that situation and how badly that could have gone for me, first of all, but also how badly just in general. And I always regret that moment. Because here was this opportunity to learn how to deal with disagreements well, and I chose to respond with anger and violence. And man, that's so prevalent today in our society and culture, isn't it? And I could have responded in a different way. And I I don't know that that young man responded the way he did because he knew Jesus, but what I do know is if you do know Jesus, that you should be able to respond in a broken, dark, evil world with love. Now, I want to make this clear. I'm not making a theological argument for just war or pacifism. I'm actually not a pacifist. But what I am saying is that every single Christian in our broken, dark, fallen world should be able to know how to fight back in our culture with love rather than anger. What would that look like in your life? What would it look like in your marriage to fight back differently rather than one person says something and I return it with something even meaner? I remember my mentor, Glenn, who's going to be here in April. I can't wait. He hasn't been out for a couple years. Uh, He would talk about when him and his wife would get into arguments. I didn't share this at the other services. They would actually, rather than just getting more and more angry, they'd separate for a little bit. 
They'd pray for a little bit. I know this sounds cheesy, but they would do this. And when they would come back together, they often would be fighting the other side of the argument now as God began to give them compassion for their spouse. Think about it, that's not just true for our marriages, it's true for our children, like the, we are called to love people well. And, and then we'll talk about the, both love has both truth and grace, right? Like you need both. It's not just let people walk over you. Love is a bold thing, but it's being willing to show grace and love into people's lives and to actually live differently than that. And let's just be honest, I've brought this up uh, all weekend. And I think it's important because we haven't had this week that, to, that I'm aware of any big um, racial things happen all over the news, like has happened so often in the last few years. And so I wanted to make the statement when it's not culturally um, required so that you know how important it is. That as Christians today, where racial oppression still happens on a daily basis in our society and culture, we as Christians are called to be the voice in that situation, to speak up and to speak out and to respond with love and to love our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being uh, oppressed or have prejudice, prejudice in their life. You and I are called to do that. And it's a large, culturally sensitive example of a bigger picture that you and I are called to do every day in our life, of how we love people both inside and outside the church well. That's how we live differently and stand out in a broken, fallen, sin-filled world. That's what I want to describe and what I want to talk about, how to fight back with love in a fallen world. And if you're taking notes, I'm going to move quick. And the first point I'd like to make from 1 John 2 as we work backwards is to realize that you're in a fight. See, I meet people who've been Christians for a long time and you don't realize that you're in a spiritual battle. Every day you wake up for your soul, for your attention, your love, your adoration, and your worship. That's what John the Apostle is getting at in verses 15 here. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. That rather than loving our Heavenly Father like you were created for, the enemy, Satan, the Hasatan, the adversary, the devil, whatever name you want to give him, he desires to pull our love away from our Heavenly Father and to love other things instead. And the way we profess our love is with our time, our talents, and our treasures. And love is not just a feeling, it is a choice. In our marriages, in our relationships, in the way that we live and interact in society and culture today. Verse 16, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Those three things, I want to dive deep into that. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. There are these things in our life today, in the world, that desire to take our love from God and turn it towards these other things so that we don't live for Christ today. The first one that it mentions is the lust of the flesh. Sexual temptation is very prevalent in our culture today, right? I mean, here is just one example of a movie. We could look at all kinds of uh, books and magazines, and we could look at advertisements especially, and the way the lust of the flesh is used to get us to purchase a ticket or to buy a product. And marketers aren't evil, by the way, if you're in sales or marketing. They just know human nature. And Rick Warren, a pastor in Southern California, used to talk about he'd give his, his kids like a dollar every time they could mention which of these three things the, they were using in the advertisement to get somebody to buy something. Because the enemy would love to let sexual temptation be the driver in your decision-making to take your love away from your Heavenly Father. But it's also the lust of the eyes, materialism in our culture today, right? And again, nothing wrong with the car that gets you to love things in this world. Look how they actually get you to buy this car. Men talk about women, sports, and cars. Women talk about men inside sports cars. 
the guys, you could see yourself just driving that thing around, baby, and people going to love you and be like, ooh, who's that? That young man is looking fine in that car, uh-huh. Young man can't afford that car, but you could imagine what it would look like. Maybe it's not the lust of the eyes. Maybe it's the pride of life, like power and popularity. I mean, look at this. This is Beyonce's fragrance here, and look how they're selling it. Pulse, feel the power. You spray a little of that on you, and all of a sudden, you got the power of Beyonce. Come on now, girl. You're going to be walking around strutting that stuff. That's what they want you to believe, right? Because that's what entices us today. We know it in advertising and marketing, but that actually happens every day in our life that the enemy would love to use power and popularity or sexual temptation or materialism to draw your love away from your heavenly father and what you were intended to live like in our culture today. What if we live differently? And don't think that this just applies to those who are maybe new to walking out the things of faith. Every single one of us, you may see victories or even freedom in these areas of your life, but it doesn't mean that the temptation isn't still prevalent. And I want to give you an example of a man who, uh, whether he truly knew Jesus or not, I can't say. But what I do know is he was one of the first seven deacons in the early church, and he led a lot of people astray. Here's what I want to show you in 1 John 2, 18 to 19. It goes on. Remember, this is to the church in Ephesus, why that's important. Dear, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Now, pause it real quick. John also has the revelation that he writes down about the end times and how it will re- uh, occur. And you may be familiar with the Antichrist here that will happen in the end times. But then it mentions many Antichrists. It's no longer talking about the end time Antichrist. It's now talking about people in that society and culture, particularly writing to the church in Ephesus, those there that were leading people astray, these, these men leading people astray, these Antichrists there in Ephesus. And it says, these Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, so they had been with them, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belong to us. They were teaching things that were leading people astray from worshiping God instead of worshiping things in their society and culture. In fact, the reason that it's written to Ephesus is important because in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, there, if you're familiar with Revelation 2 and 3, it's about, it mentions these seven churches, and one of them is the church in Ephesus. And when it's referring to the church in Ephesus, it says this in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 2. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That one of the early things in the church of Ephesus that was leading people astray was the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, I know it's after St. Patty's Day, and you're thinking about lunchtime, but we're going to go deep for a moment. That what is happening here, he's referencing this teaching that laid the groundwork, which a century later would come to be known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism essentially was the great early threat to Christianity. And it taught that Jesus didn't really come to earth and he didn't really, wasn't really crucified and fully God and fully human. He didn't really raise from the dead. And they interjected all this Greek philosophical beliefs into it. And it led a lot of people astray and made them live differently in this lifetime. If you ever watch the History Channel and they'll reference these lost gospels like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Judas and why didn't they get into the New Testament and all that stuff. And the reason is very clear because all the early Christians knew that those were written by Gnostics. 
they knew that this was not only heretical, but did not tell the story that the early disciples told. And so that's why it wasn't in there. I think we should be glad about that. If you've never read those, like the Gospel of Thomas, it talks about Jesus when he's a 12-year-old boy and he wants to show off to his friends about his superpowers, so he kills these birds and then he feels bad about it, so he raises them back to life, right? Like, it was, it was written by Gnostics and it basically made uh, Jesus not fully God and fully human. Do you know who led the early Nicolaitans, though? Because it's writing to Ephesus, these antichrists, it references there that the Nicolaitans are one of the antichrists, the people groups that's leading people astray. And many scholars believe Nicholas is the one that started Nicolaitans and he was one of the first seven deacons of the early church. Acts chapter 6, verse 5. It mentions the first seven deacons. It says, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, uh, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. I don't know whether Nicholas ever really knew the Lord or not, but what I do know is this, that his teachings, at least many scholars believe, that it led a lot of people astray. And in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, he, he is saying these antichrists have come out and are leading people astray, that the pride of life and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes is a temptation that is very real and most likely even real for one of the first seven deacons of the early church. So don't think that any of us have all this figured out. That type of self-righteousness could be really destructive. And if we want to fight back with love in a fallen world, we have to understand we're in a spiritual battle that you and I, I don't care how long I've been a pastor, I've had a real reminder of this recently, i got to open up that Bible and i got to spend time with the Lord because I'm in a spiritual battle. If I'm not armed and ready to do this, if I'm not connected with God in my life, if I'm not hearing from him, it's going to be hard to fight back with love. Because this world's dark. And when things get dark, we lose hope. And the only thing we're going to talk about in a moment that brings light in the darkness is a relationship with God is transformative to us. And people take notice of that. So number two, you realize that you're in a spiritual fight, but number two, you have to love your neighbor and your brother. Now, First John 2 is going to talk about loving your brother or sister in Christ, the people inside the walls. But I want to remind us of Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus says this in verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What would it look like today for you to love your enemies? What would it look like to love the people who have wronged you in your life? What would it look like to love the person that really hurt your feelings badly? What would it look like to love people that you don't even like, that annoy you or drive you nuts? What would it look like to love those people well? And rather than sitting in guilt and shame over it, connecting with God and responding and saying, God, help me to, to live out of love towards these people. I'm reminded, I shared the story of the, the, when I was a high school student, but I'm reminded of Eric Maitland, our worship leader. I, I knew one of his fraternity brothers that there was a group of eight or nine of them in their fraternity house at IU that all came to Christ at the same time. It's a beautiful thing. My favorite part is they actually got matching tattoos on their backs, too. It's really cute. You'll have to ask Eric about that. But uh, I, I reminded that because I remember hearing about one of the fraternity brothers who came to Christ, this big dude that used to, frankly, get in fights. And he was out one night, and he was now a Christian, and an inebriated man punched him in the face, just like I described earlier. And he actually looked at the guy, and this, he's a big guy, and he literally did what Jesus described, and he, t- he said, I'm going to turn my other cheek. You can have this one too. And this inebriated guy didn't know what to do, and he just walked away. 
Now, I wasn't there. I don't know the authenticity of the story, but I do know that it's an example of exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5. And it may not always work out that way, and I'm not telling you to be a pushover in your life, but we have to respond with love in our culture that is dark and hurting and broken. Not just outside the walls of the church, though. A church like Mercy Road, we talk about that kind of stuff all the time, going out and loving our communities. But what does it look like to love people inside the church? Sometimes that's harder because you get to know people really well and you know their dirt and their hang-ups and, and all their problems and it's harder for you to not, to not gossip behind their back and use the things they've shared with you against them. Like, What's it look like to love people inside the church? That's actually in 1 John 2 as we work backwards here, what he's referring to. Verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. But the way that we be a light in the darkness, at least in 1 John 2, 9-11, is to love our brother or sister in Christ. Well, the word brother is Adelphus. It, it literally means brothers, but it's a reference to believers here, is what he's referring to. That we would love the believers in the church well, that that's actually in the New Testament how the, the light of Christ rang out. In fact, you look at the church in Thessalonica, the message rang out there because they were loving each other well. And people go, man, you guys actually care about people. Like I saw that person, they went to the hospital and they were in there for a week and like four or five people reached out to them and they sent gifts and they were praying for them. They provided meals for them and Now, it takes you actually investing in community so you can have those types of relationships. But that's what is missing in a society and culture where it's, I'm going to get mine and you get yours and we're going to fight over it. Instead, we're looking to love each other well. That's actually the way that Jesus and the early Christians lived. And that's what John is referring to here. That rather than talking behind people's backs and gossiping, we're going to love them well. Instead of passing vague messages about our social relationship problems or our marital disputes on social media, we're actually going to deal with people and seek out help, and we're going to search out Christian community to walk through these problems in our life together. Because we're going to fight back with love. We're going to love our enemy, and we're going to love our brother. That's what it looks like. It includes, you ready for this? Not just the bad people and loving them well, but loving the Christians that are self-righteous and Pharisaic and Bible-thumping that drive some of you nuts. We're even called to love every person well. What's that look like in your life right now? I believe that's why in Mark chapter 12, verse 30 to 31, Jesus says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The greatest commandment. And the second is like it, is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. We're called to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and being. Love our neighbor as ourselves. And can you really love your heavenly father if you can't love your neighbor? That's at the heart of what John is getting to in 1 John. You have to love your enemy and your brother. And then number three, as you do that, that's how you fight back with light. Fight back with light. Now, I thought a more clear way of explaining this is to a light in the darkness that stands out, doesn't it? That you're called to stand out, to be an anomaly in our society, to look differently. First John chapter 1, earlier on in verse 5, a famous verse, it says this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness. If, if, so, if something is completely dark and there is a light in it, it lights up the room. The darkness cannot overcome the light. The light illuminates the darkness. And God is light. If God steps into the room, he lights the room up. And anyone who bears his image in the world will be a light in the darkness. It goes on to say this in verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him 
and yet walk in the darkness. We lie and do not live out the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son purifies us from all sin. That if we live with him and we allow him to encompass our lives and we love other people the way that Jesus loved people, that it will be a light in a dark world, that there will be hope where there is no hope today in our society and culture. That you could bear the image of God to those in your family and your sphere of influence at work simply by allowing Jesus to help you love other people well. Both grace and truth, it will stand out. When others don't care, you do. Have anybody in here ever been in a completely dark space before, like a cave, any spelunkers out there. Okay, a few of you. I'm going to ask the guys to try and hit the lights right now. If we can kill, it's going to take them about 60 seconds or so to kill every light in this room that we can as best as possible. If you've ever been in a cave or a place that is completely dark and you can't see anything, it can be a little scary at times. It can make you feel like you don't know what's happening right next to you. And I know as a child, you're afraid of the dark, but things happen in the darkness that you can't see. And it causes you to begin to lose hope. In fact, for many of us, we do things in the darkness that we would never do in the light. And when we feel like it's a dark world and everybody's, I'm going to get mine and you get yours and they hurt me, so I'm going to hurt them. They said mean things to me online, I'm going to say mean things back to them. I'm going to love differently. It stands out when we practice what 1 John says, because a light in the darkness, you cannot take your eyes off of it. And when that light lights up, you can't stop looking at it, right? Like it stands out when somebody says, I know people in our society today have racial prejudice, but I'm going to speak up for them because I've got the power to do so. It stands out. I'm going to fight back with love today. When I, people see your marriage and they see, you know what? That she did something, he did something. You should totally just rip into them and you fight back with love in that marriage. They go, what's going on here? You look different. When you raise your kids in a way that they genuinely know that they love you, that you love them both with grace and truth, that means today in our culture that we're fighting back with love and people go, why is your, your marriage and your family look differently when you're at your workplace and it's easy to go to the water cooler and gossip behind people's back and you don't do it and you say, I'm going to fight back with love? It changes things, doesn't it? But when it gets dark again and people don't see that light, It feels overwhelming. I'm going to ask you to do something. I didn't do this at the other service. You see, when the light comes on, it's a bit contagious. Get your phone out for just a second. I know you got a flashlight on that phone. You turn that brightness all the way up. I want you today that if you are a follower of Jesus, the concept is in a dark room, if we all get our light out, it begins to change the way the room looks. And people can take notice. You can see things that you didn't see before. And the lack of hope that you once had because the darkness around you is looking at. All of a sudden, you can see my face. You were like, I wish the light was still off, but it changes things, doesn't it? When you begin to live differently, can we thank those guys in the back? Nice job, everyone. Turn those off. I really wish we had a lightsaber for everyone. That would have made that moment really powerful. And now for my favorite part of this, you ready? Yeah, Yeah, baby, come on now. That you and I could look and live differently, could love people, love the unlovable care about the socially outcasts when no one else does, fight racial oppression, use the power and authority you've been given to make an impact in the culture and society today, that that's actually what the good news of Jesus looks like today. It's life-changing, it's earth-shattering, it changes our workplaces, and it changes everything in our daily lives. You realize you're in a spiritual battle, love your enemy and your brother, and to fight back with the light. 
1 John 2, 3 to 6 says this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, if you say in here, I know Jesus, but does not do what he commands is a liar. Woo. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him, in him must live as Jesus did. Now I want to make clear, you know, we believe that we have salvation through grace alone. You don't have to do good works in order to earn that salvation. You'll never be good enough to earn your, the spot in the perfect presence of God. However, we know in the book of James, it also refers to faith without deeds is dead, that if you've received the free grace and love of Jesus Christ that you and I did not deserve, the only way you can respond is to share that grace and love and fight back in our culture to love other people even though they don't deserve it. That whether we choose to love someone or not is not based off of whether or not they deserved it or whether or not we liked them at that moment. Love is a choice. I want to give you two examples as we close out because I believe that the Apostle John here wasn't sure that you knew Jesus if you didn't see the, his love in your life. That's how dramatic he was. That's how dramatic he was. And I thought of two examples of this that just blow my mind. And the first one, I mean, was his weekend, right? St. Patrick. But Patrick was actually a real dude kidnapped as a child from London by pagans, Celtic pagan worshipers in what is now the island of Ireland, and he was enslaved there for years. And as a young man, he escaped his captors, and he went back to London. And over that course of time, he had become a Christian, and he studied the scriptures and looked at the life of Jesus, and he begins to get compassion. It's earth-shattering for him, and he feels like he needs to go back to the very island where people enslaved him and tell them about the grace and love of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but if I lost my entire childhood because people enslaved me, I would be thinking some other thoughts in my head. And yet his church sends him back to Ireland. He goes there, he actually uses the clover there, at least in folklore, that that's what he uses to teach the Trinity. One God, three persons. And the entire island comes to faith that all these years later, at least most of Ireland uh, at least claims faith in Jesus Christ today that he made an impact that changed an entire island. And it didn't just stop there. Some scholars believe because of that missionary effort, it demonstrated the power and authority that Jesus Christ can have when one light lights up, that that led to much of the missionary movement that happened, reaching the most of Western society for Jesus Christ. It was a wake of impact of one person taking their difficult situation and saying, I'm going to fight back in this dark world with grace and love. The second example I'm going to give you is an easy one, and that's the life of Jesus. See, I know we can be around church and Christianity enough that we forget the impact of this, and we're going to talk about it more fully at Easter time, but I was thinking about this. When Jesus is living, and he does three years of active ministry, and he teaches all these things about loving your enemy, he's rewarded for that by being beaten, berated, spit on, whipped with a cat of nine tails 39 times, chunks of flesh coming out of his body, thought that 40 would kill you, and at the verge of death, they make him carry a tree trunk a mile up a hill where he's nailed to it, not to bleed to death, but to suffocate to death on the cross. And as he's trying to get his last breaths, right, that's why they would come around and break the legs, because when you couldn't hold yourself up anymore, it meant that you would get shallower and shallower breaths, and you would suffocate to death. And as he's gasping for his last breath in one of the Gospels, he actually says, forgive them, God, for they know not what they do. 
That's a different message than society brings, isn't it? That he loved the very people that are killing him enough to ask his heavenly father to forgive them for they know not what they do because they live in darkness and he wanted to bring the light. What would that look like in your life today as we begin to live out the light of Jesus Christ? And I imagine there are some of us in the room right now where you've desired to do that, but the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes have been preventing you from loving other people well because you haven't loved your heavenly father back. And rather than pointing in judgment and all that kind of stuff, What if we just responded in this moment, both Christian and not, and say, Jesus, I want to live out of light in this world, to bring light in a dark world. I believe he could change. And if you impact one person, that impact another person, that impact another person, that you and I sitting here today could shape the course of human history by one person choosing to live differently and allowing the love of Jesus to encompass their life. So I'm gonna give you the opportunity to do that. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. We give you this time. I gotta imagine uh, there is... One person here or watching online, whether it's to recommit their life or for the first time to surrender to you, that they want to begin to live out your love in this dark world, to be a light in the darkness. If that's you right now, I invite you to pray this silently as I prayed out loud. God, I confess that I am not perfect. I've given in to these temptations. I believe and receive your grace and love. Now empower me to fight back in this culture with the very same things. On this day, March 18, 2018, I surrender my life to you fully. Use me, Lord Jesus. God, we love you and we praise you. And we give you this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and everybody said, amen.